It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended. It's time for adventure. Welcome to Mutual Presents. I'm Jack Ward, and I'm here with my pirate kitty, Penny. This week, we honor the great additions to radio drama from the Mutual Broadcasting System with Thursday thrillers The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen and a double feature. The Fat Trader and the Sword of Apokazin, and the Tattooed Beaver and Baby Food for Pear Pear. Seriously, what better titles does any other series have? Before we get wet from the ocean spray on the deck, let's wind back those clocks and begin. Mutual 
schedule continues The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen, written by Gil Dowd and Bob Tallman, and starring Elliot Lewis. Scarlet Queen, proudest ship to plow the seas, bound for uncharted adventure. Every week, a complete entry in the log, and every week, a league further in the strange voyage of the Scarlet Queen. Chief Mate Gallagher in charge of the ship as soon as it was secure and followed Gilly up into Santa Can. We paralleled the waterfront, passing through the welter of races that make up the population and their living places, as varied as the type of the people. At the end of one street, there was a pier jutting out into the bay, bordered on each side by a fringe of oriental booths, open-air markets, and small tin-roof frame buildings. To one of these last, Gilly led me. And hanging out over the door was a sign that was by this time familiar to me. China Trader. Tang and Son. A slight Chinese glanced up from a desk as we went in. And the white man who was lighting an oil lamp against the approaching evening was old. From his shoulders hung a shapeless white duck coat. From the corners of his mouth ran two brown tobacco stains. Oh, yes. This is Connie, the skipper. Meet V.L. Trodmore. Hello, Mr. Trodmore. I've been turning to assistant. This is Kim, the office clerk. How are you, Kim? Oh, very happy, Captain Connie, having heard much good talk of you. Thanks, Kim. Now, what's the story on Channing, Trudmore? A cruel one. I found him this morning when I came to the office. I say, uh, I found him. What was left of him. He was lying right there. What's this talk about a Dyak headhunting party? There's more than talk, Captain. He was here. Here's the man down that cut poor Channing down. The B&B company already traced it to the Dyaks of Apokajan. The heavy sword he held up for me to see had a blade about two feet long by three inches wide. Whetted the razor sharpness on one side and broadening to almost a quarter of an inch on the other. At the top of the ivory handle was a male human figure from which hung a dozen or more tufts of what looked like human hair. And into the grip below him were embedded a number of gems of varying colors and brilliance. The blade had new, dull reddish stains a few inches from the tip. So as sure as I'm standing here, poor Channing's head is on its way to the smoke and fire to be howled at and danced around by them devils for eight days of Mamadulu celebration. The company ought to turn the garrison out after them. Yeah. Have you notified Kang? Yes, but I've got no answer yet. In the meantime... Gilly and I are doing the best we can. Yeah, you got some stores for me? I'll take care of them for you. You can give me a hand, Kim. Oh, uh, yes, I'll, Mr. Gilly. The stone is back here, Skipper. Yeah. Uh, tried one. Yeah. I was wondering why out of all the places in town your Dyaks came here for their head. I wondered myself, Captain. But who can answer why the Dyaks don't even know their own minds? An hour and a half later, it was dark. I went back to the ship after sending a wagon load of stores down to her and stopping to cable Kang the story on Channing myself. The sight of the queen resting easily at her berth with her mast headlights shining cleanly in the murk gave me the only lift of the sultry night so far. Neil 
Captain was standing gangway watch, and he grinned at me as I came aboard. Muggy night, Captain. Yeah. Uh, stores get aboard all right? Yes, sir. And a visitor, too. Visitor? A big fat fella. He's in the cabin with the chief. <laughs> he gave the gangway a real test when he came aboard. I knew what Nielsen meant when I saw the expanse of flesh sprawled in one of my cabin chairs. His head was bald and sweat-spotted. He was mopping his flabby face with a damp handkerchief. Pinkly sunburned arms hung out of the short sleeves of his shirt, folds of flesh hanging from the elbows, and massive pinkly sunburned legs emerged from a tent-like pair of white shorts. This is Mr. Whitehead, Skipper. Ah, uh, hello. Indeed, <sighs> Warm pleasure, Captain Carney. Now sit still, don't get up. Thank you, Captain. You're an understanding man. In these latitudes, even breathing is an effort for one cursed with my heft. Your hands are... Yeah. Glad to know you. Your chief officer kindly offered me the hospitality of your ship so that I might wait for an audience with you. It's, uh... In regard to a matter of great importance to me, and uh, no little potential profit to you. Go right ahead. You uh, have, I believe, heard of the sword from Apple Kajan? Yeah. It only killed the man I came down to Santa Can to see. Did what? That's right, Red. A great weapon. Captain Carney, I would give you 500 American dollars if you would but place that sword in my hand. A lot of dough. After faithfully following its trail to the caverns of San Yang, I am most willing to pay the price. This sort of history, gentlemen, should rest through the centuries in some hallowed museum. Huh? Its story reaches back to the almost legendary Rajah Bali Kajang, who ruled Borneo in the year 200 BC. It was his hand that swung it in battle. You. you saw the sword, Captain? Yeah, I saw it. You lingered over the hilt from which hung the hair of the 13 victims of Bali Kajang? Not quite, no. Tell me, tell me, Captain. Did it not carry the figure of the great god Siva? I don't know. It was an ivory figure of a man wearing a cone-shaped hat, whatever it was. Ah, Siva. Among the highest of the deities. Sanning wrested it from the Senyang caverns, far above the headwaters of the Kajang River. He beat me there by only two days. Oh? Who knows? Perhaps the spirit smiled kindly upon me. Had I found it, perhaps at this moment it would be my head slung over the tattooed shoulder of some savage. Like Channing, you mean? Yes. By the merest warping of fortune, it was not I, but Channing who became the Parvi, one who offended the spirits. They followed and killed him to right the wrong. And since the sword had acquired his evilness, they left it. <laughs> but the curse has not decreased its value to us in the least. <sighs> well, gentlemen. Brad? Sounds like an easy five to me. Okay, Whitehead. Well, try it anyway. Splendid, splendid. At last I can see the favorable completion of a long quest. Oh. Now, here. Here is a hundred dollars. Not knowing the true value of the sword, I believe Trotmore and Gilly will leap to accept it as the most equitable price. Uh, I trust, of course, that you will maintain the prudent silence in regard to said value. Yeah, okay. Splendid. You may find me at the Orange Hotel, just a stone's throw from here on Kinabalu Road. Good fortune, gentlemen, and a quick and easy turn of profit. 
Gallagher and I watched him ease his bulk through the passageway and out onto the deck. Then we had a couple of drinks and left ourselves. We reached the pier, and against the dark water, we could see the streaks of phosphorescence outlining the hulls of a half dozen moored sampans. Few of the shops were open, but when we got farther out toward the China trader's office, the pier was almost deserted. We stopped at the door. We didn't bother to knock because nobody would have answered us. The oil lamp was still burning, but only from the clothes could I tell that the body spoiled at the foot of the desk was Kim, the Chinese clerk. He was in the same condition that Channing had been found in. And stuck into the floor in the middle of a crimson pool was the sword from Apo Kajan. I wrenched it out of the wood. Holding it as inconspicuously as possible against my leg, I followed Red back out onto the pier. We got halfway up to the foot of the pier when a figure moved out of the shadows and stopped us. Hello, Skipper. Hello, Gilly. You been down to the office? Aye. Pretty, isn't it? What the devil's going on? That's what I'd like to know. My mate, Gallagher. Aye. I saw him on the ship. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why those butchers keep coming back to the office, but I do know. I ain't staying away. I got the sword, Gilly. It's been used twice, so I'm getting it out of there. You mind? Not at all, not you at wanna, all. You want to sell it or anything? No. No, you're welcome to it, Skipper. I wouldn't be caught dead with it, but if you want it, well, it's your head. to the foot of the pier with us, nodded goodbye and turned one way while we turned the other and headed for the Orange Hotel by way of all the lighted streets we could find. We sent a surround bellboy at the Whitehead who was in the bar and who emerged from it with his puffy eyes wide open and staring in disbelief. You got it! Quickly! At a rumbling trot, he led us a hundred yards away from the main building to his cottage. And when we were inside, he was panting and dripping from exertion and shaking as though from palsy and excitement. Gentlemen, my my heartiest congratulations for a task well performed. We don't deserve them, Whitehead. Oh, indeed, indeed. The Dayaks were back. I'm sure I misunderstood you, Captain. I don't think so. They collected another head. Kim, the Chinese clerk at the office. Uh, Mr. Gallagher... Surely the Captain Jeff. No, not this time. And the blasted sword was sticking on the floor beside him. By Jove. Most extraordinary thing. You you saw no one on the pier. Just Gilly. He wouldn't take even one of your hundred bucks. He said, take the sword and welcome. Oh, here's your money. You're an honest man, Captain. Had Gilly been informed, it would have been a far different story. What is danger, gentlemen? What is a hundred dollars? Five thousand? When I have in my hands at last the sword of Apokajan, when I stroke the hair of Raja Balikajan's enemies fell twenty centuries ago, when I stroke the figure of Siva and the seventeen jewels of Siva, the uh, jewels are for the seventeen sons, gentlemen. Come, come closer to the lights and I will name them. You really do know that sword, don't you? It has been my very life, Captain. See here. Here. The shining one. The diamond for the first son, Ki'i Balalanka. The ruddy one. The ruby for the second, Ki'i Balalankasyan. The pure one. The pearl for... <laughs> no! No, it cannot be. What's the matter? No, not now. Hey, what? It cannot be. 
Aboard our ship. Who else does that, Trudmore? I think Kim is the only one who knew it with Channing. But Kim is dead. But, Captain, now you know the importance of the sword to China traders. Yeah. I think you'd better contact the garrison and have somebody go after Whitehead. Better than that, I'll go with him. I think there's no question but that he killed Channing. I'd like to be there to hear him say it. What are you going to do, Captain? I think we'd better pull out of Santa Can tonight and stand by till things cool off. With the sword aboard the ship, at least I'll feel better at sea. It was about two hours before dawn when we left Trotmore and headed back to the ship. On the way down, I tried to remember what we had in the way of tides and currents in Santa Can Harbor. By the time we reached our dock, I decided that there was no reason that we couldn't cast off right away and at least get started away from this place before daylight. First thing that changed my mind was the fact that the gangway watch wasn't at his station. We ran into the second when we walked into the cabin. It was Gilly. He was lying on his back, but there was nothing diac about the way he'd gone out. His eyes stared deadly upward, and between them was a carefully placed bullet hole. The third reason moved heavily out of a corner with an automatic clutched in his pudgy hand. Our meetings are becoming not only numerous, but monotonous, Captain. And, uh, Mr. Gallica. Yes. I trust this will be the last one. What'd you do with my crewman, Whitehead? He's trussed up in somewhat the same fashion as that in which you left me. What's Gilly doing here? He accompanied me. As a matter of fact, he brought me. In this order, he told me where the original sword from Apokajan was hidden, loosed my bonds, and then, here on your ship, the scoundrel had the effrontery to bargain with me for a share of the proceeds. You see my answer between his eyes. How did Gilly know where the sword was? Oh, very simple, Captain, very simple. He was told by the Chinese clerk, Kim, and immediately thereupon... Saw to it that said Chinese clerk would reveal said location to no others. Do you follow me? Yeah. We saw Kim. And you don't deny that the priceless sword is here aboard your vessel. Gentlemen, the deaths of Channing and Gilly will, I hope, discourage any further cleverness on your part. Okay, Whitehead. Where'd you store those stores, Red? You mean it, Skipper? Yeah, I mean it. Okay, Skipper. It's all here in the gun locker. A million pounds a year. Drag it out and we'll go through it. Red pulled the crates and boxes out of the locker and I started opening them. Under the watchful gun, dumping the contents on the deck. Whitehead wouldn't have had to bother with the automatic because I wanted to find the sword as badly as he did. I wanted to give it to him, watch him leave, and wipe my hands of the whole thing. It was there, all right. It showed up in a long box of new spring steel grappling hooks. As far as I could see, it was exactly similar to the other one. <sighs> Whitehead snatched it out of my hands as though I was about to make it disappear. He took it into a brighter light. His attention was diverted for a few seconds, and Red looked at me expectantly, but I shook my head. I didn't want action. I just wanted him off my ship. Ah, there's no mistake this time. The original sword of Apple Kajan. Yeah, I hope you're miserably happy with it, Whitehead. I hope it brings you nothing but trouble until you stretch out. Oh, oh come now, Captain. I must say, that's an odd way to compliment my final success. Not quite the final, but we can trot Well, Trotball, welcome aboard. Come right in. Whitehead will first drop his gun. Well, I have a steady sight on his fat spine. Then we'll talk about freedom, Whitehead. Damn it. 
How the devil did you happen to show up, Sardmore? I've been here. I came right away when I found his cottage empty. I'm a trader myself. I waited until he had the sword in his hands. I know that freedom will now bring a good price from the uh, fat one. How much, Whitehead? If I let you take your sword and leave the ship... I have 500 pounds with me. Well, if that's all, then it has to be enough. Mr. Chadmore, you're a reasonable man. You'll have but to reach into my hip pocket for my wallet. My part of the transaction is fulfilled. All right. You can go now. Well. Well. A knight of extremes, gentlemen. Good fortune to you all. What's going on? But that's the idea, Troy. Not yet, Captain. Yeah, but you're letting Whitehead go to make the million-dollar deal with the sword. I don't want the sword. And I hope Coochie Kang agrees even for a million pounds a year. It brings too much death. Because it should never have been taken from the caverns of Sen Yang. Come out on deck. There's enough dawn. I'll show you something. day was barely lighting the sky to the east when we stopped on deck. The harbor had not yet come to life. The pier was deserted. Trodmore held up a knob hand and pointed. Whitehead, watch well where he goes. There was enough gray brightness to see Whitehead's fat figure walking shoreward near the foot of the pier. He reached the end of it. There was a small depression in the ground to his right. He faltered, stopped, started back. And that's when Trodmore's word rang with truth. A swarm of dark figures surged out of the depression. Bright blades glittered. The swarm scattered and disappeared, and we could see the shapeless mass that had been Whitehead sprawled on the ground. The sword brought death again. Who were they, Trodmore? Kenja Dayak, down from Apokajan. And get their sword and take it back to the caverns of Senyang. And a new head, back to their compound. You said they told you at the garrison that there weren't any Kenja Dayaks in town. Garrison doesn't know everything, Captain. What the Dayaks do, huh? What do you mean? They knew just when and where to meet Whitehead. And you knew just when and where they would meet. Yeah. You couldn't have passed a word along to them, could you? I could have. Communication is pretty fast in Borneo. And the Kenja Dayaks and I shared the problem. Their sword and death in my office. I could have. And I think he cheated me. I don't think there's much over 300 pounds in this wallet.
lazily to work in the light breeze, and the Scarlet Queen stood out in her easy, rocky motion towards the Macassar Straits and the port of Macassar and the Celebes below. That's the best we can do with what's blowing down to us, Skipper. Not much wind, Red, but we got all the ocean in the world and all the time in the world, so who cares? You sound so carefree, Skipper. What's gotten into you? I was thinking of how lucky we were not to have a diamond mine loading us down with a few million pounds a year. Uh, yeah, 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 that'd be worse than being married. High finance is a terrible thing. Yeah. You get big in the middle from sitting and small in the head from worrying. And look at us. Yeah, nothing to worry about but wind, which is pretty close to nothing. And show me an office man that can dangle his toes in the Celebes Sea during working hours. All this just because we don't have a diamond mine, Skipper? Uh-huh. Well, I have to admit, it's a gruesome thought. Yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> well, let's forget it. Drink, Skipper? Well, why only ask somebody to tilt the bottle? <laughs> After you, mate. After you. Scarlet Queen, 5.30 p.m. Miles traveled from San Francisco, 15,816. Sky fair, wind light. Carrying full sail. Ship secure for night. Signed, Philip Carney, Master. invite you to sail into further adventure on the voyage of the Scarlet Queen next week at the same time. Entry, the catch, Scarlet Queen, Philip Carney, Master. Position, 5 degrees, 5 minutes south, 120 degrees, 3 minutes east. Wind light, sky overcast. Remarks, cleared port of Macassar, Celebes Island, after troubled voyage up coast. Reason for trouble, tattooed beaver and baby food for pare pare. sky nine days out of Sandakan that we swung in toward the mountains that are the backdrop for Macassar, our first port below the equator. The Scarlet Queen threaded her way through the usual clutter of oriental harbor traffic. Rusted inter-island steamers in from Surabaya, Batavia, Amboina, Papua, native craft from Celebes ports. It started to rain when we were halfway across the harbor. By the time we'd reached our berth at the Netherlands Asia Company's docks, our decks were awash with it. And it fell with equatorial consistency for two days. Hang's orders on Macassar had warned that the place was swarming with Constantino men, grouping because of our nearness to the prize Kang had charted me to sail after. 
The orders were that unless we were contacted the first day, we were to leave and return every 24 hours. The first day passed without contact. So on the second, my chief mate Gallagher and I nosed into the city looking for a short cargo haul or something to make a trip out profitable. We didn't find it. But the third day started out to be better. We got a promise of clearing weather when the barometer started to rise and the chance for a money trip when a visitor walked aboard the Scarlet Queen. I am Van Riper, master of the local Juliana. Ah, welcome aboard, Captain. I'm Phil Carney. I see you berthed here. You are for charter? Oh, I might be. Good. I tell you about your passengers. Well, I'm not rigged for passengers. You are good enough. There are only two men and a married couple. Two cabins. They bought passage with me to Pare Pare, but now I don't go. I got a better offer, a cargo for Java. And you already signed for their passage? That is right. They are in a hurry to get there. One day up, one day back. I pay you myself 2,000 florins. Hmm. Well, all right, Van Riper. Get him aboard. I'll want to leave this afternoon. You have the papers to sign. In this envelope, 2,000 florins. They will be here in two hours. I signed the papers and watched him waddle off and disappear into the driving rain. Gallagher moved his gear into my cabin and we made what preparations we could for the passengers and checked the charts for the run up the Celebes Coast to Pare Pare. Looked like tricky sailing already, but when I read the barometer the last time before my passengers came aboard, I wished I hadn't signed them on. The mercury had risen all morning, but now it was falling rapidly. That and the lessening rain meant only one thing in these latitudes. Storm. And so Mutual continues The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen, written by Gil Dowd and Bob Tallman, and starring Elliot Lewis. The Scarlet Queen, proudest ship to plow the seas, bound for uncharted adventure. Every week, a complete entry in the log, and every week, a league further into the strange Voyage of the Scarlet Queen. By the time the passengers showed up, even the harbor water was uneasy, stirred by the rolling swells that swept in from Macassar Strait. They came aboard in the following order. First, wearing gaiters, a high clerical collar, flat hat, and a long ecclesiastical rain cape, a hawk-faced man. I am Reverend Beaver, Captain. Harlem Beaver. May I say that your presence in this port was providential? When I think of those poor, gentle savages without a shepherd these many weeks. Yeah, your cabin is the first one to stop it, Reverend. And this uh, companionway here. Number two was a sodden shape encased in white linen that was both wet and dirty. He carried a small black valise. I have been cursed with the name Ambrose Griffith, sir, but you will be relieved to know that there is a qualified physician aboard. You bunk with a reverend, doctor. A reverend, you say? <laughs> It'll be a mighty tussle should he grapple with Griffith's demon. First cabin on this side. The couple came aboard with the help of three crewmen. A man in a wheelchair, bundled in scarves, steamer rugs, and rubber sheeting until you could hardly tell what he looked like was carried aboard. Followed by his wife, 
A pale, worried-looking little woman, at least 15 years younger than her husband, but trying her best to disguise the difference in their ages by the lack of makeup and the shapeless clothes she wore. Mr. and Mrs. Alfred Cram, Captain. My husband is an invalid, as you see. Uh, there are certain things now about our boxes. Oh, you mean your baggage? Uh, no, our supplies. There are 48 boxes in all, and have your men stack them in our cabin. 48? Look, I'm sorry, Mrs. Cram. I contracted to take four passengers. Oh, my dear Captain... I can't take a cargo unless it goes through official channels. Well, if you want to delay your sailing, you are, of course, at liberty to have the supplies inspected. But I assure you the boxes contain nothing but special foods, strained baby foods, which are necessary to my husband's very existence. Mm. Oh, Captain Carney, if you only knew how hard it's been to attain even this small supply, the delays, the red tape, and my poor Yeah, okay, husband... okay, Mrs. Cram. Gallagher, rig the cargo gear and get it aboard. Forty-eight crates in the cabin? Skip. Well, get what you can in and stow the rest in number one hole. Oh, thank you, Captain. Thank you. Yeah, well, let... Uh-oh. There she comes, Red. Get it aboard and make it secure. Hold her. Lend the chief a hand. Crowder, Gordon, over here. We're rigging storm sails. <laughs> 3 p.m. Ship took on heavy roll on entering Macassar Strait. Sea cresting with heavy cross swell. Sky lowering with scudding clouds. Wind moderate southeast gale. Velocity 30 knots. Restricted passengers to quarters. Double reefed mainsail and mizzen. p.m. Swell rising. Sky unchanged. Wind fresh southeast gale. Velocity increased to 38 knots. Course altered 10 points to south for reasons of security. Port main backstay carried away. Mainsail taken in. Sailing under jib and mizzen. Eight p.m. Weather conditions unchanged. Ordered ship brought to for night and sails taken in. Keeping bow into storm with motor. Oil lanterns rigged throughout ship due to flooding of generator and failure of electrical power. What's happened to the lights? Generator's been damaged, Reverend. The oil lights will carry us. But your orders were to stay in your cabin until the storm passed over. What are you doing here? I have no need for the protection of the cabin, Captain. But for the sake of my native flock in Paripari, I must demand from you our position and the direction in which we are traveling. Our position is just off the Spermondes, and our direction is roughly north by west. Our fate is in your hands, Captain. So saying, I accuse you of the basest untruth. You reversed the direction of the ship, and in cowardice, You are retreating toward uh, Macassar. Reverend Beaver, if I could put about to Macassar, I would, but I can't. Our bow is to the storm, and we're losing way before it. Captain Carney, I must reach Paripari. Well, we'll make it. When do you expect to resume your course? When it's safe to do it. I hope that will be soon, Captain. So do I. Now, will you please go back to your cabin, Reverend? I got work to do. As you command, Captain. As he left, his hawk-like face was set in an expression that still could have been fear or anger or both. I started for the engine room to see what could be done about the generator. But before I got halfway across the cabin, I was faced by another example of the dwindling passenger discipline in the form of another visitor. This one was at least more pleasant. And he was still carrying his little black bag. I see you've been blessed with a visit from my bunkmate. I and a strange one he is, wandering about the ship the way he does. What about you, Griffity? What are you doing out of your cabin? I've come to share with you a startling bit of information. Oh? What is it? Griffithy has been about some, Captain dear, but for the life of me, never can I remember seeing a hale and hearty man huddled into a wheelchair before tonight. 
What do you mean? Well, making my rounds among the passengers, bringing them what help I could in the way of soothing words and medicants, I quietly opened the door to the cabin of Mr. and Mrs. Alfred Cram. The gentleman was there alone, Captain, busying himself, pacing the floor fore and aft. Now, what do you think of that? Yeah. Closing the door without giving him a sight of me, I left, returning after a proper time and using my knuckles on the door. Come in, he says, and there he was in his wheelchair. Is there any help I can give you, says I. Get out, says he. Nobody prescribes for me but my personal physician. And where might he be, I ask him. Get out, says he, stiffening in anger. So I left him, and there's a story, Captain. Yeah. What do you make of it? Nothing, Doc. It's none of my business. I got trouble enough of my own. Uh, I suppose you're right. Yet it strikes me as queer that a man would waste his time in a wheelchair when he can walk about. But you'll have to admit, Captain dear, it is a strange list of passengers you've got. That it is, Griffity. That it is. I didn't know how strange they were until I made my second try for the engine room. This time I'd gotten to the cabin door before I was stopped. I made it across the bucking cabin as quickly as I could and pulled open the door to the companionway. In the dim light from the oil lamps, I could see two people standing by the cabin shared by Reverend Beaver and Dr. Griffithy. One of them was Vera Cram, and the other, bare to the waist, his upper body covered with intricate tattooing, visible even in the faint light, was the Reverend Harlan Beaver. His right arm was raised before he saw me, and his slap sent Vera Cram reeling across the companionway. <laughs> then he turned and went into his cabin. Oh, Captain, thank heaven you've come. What's going on, Mr. Cram? My husband, Captain. My husband. I'm afraid he's dead. Griffity materialized out of the gloom someplace. They both followed me into the cram cabin. Both portholes were open, and the gale whipping through them had blown out the lamp. I started to light it after closing the ports, but Griffity stopped me. We don't need light, Captain. Poor fellow's dead. And perhaps darkness would be more merciful to the poor widow. Take her out, Captain. I'll do all there is to do, which is little more than covering the deceased from the eyes of the living. All right. Okay, Mrs. Cram, you can come into my cabin. Oh, thank you, Captain. You're very kind. It wasn't until she'd moved into the light that I noticed that a change had come over her. She was no longer without makeup, and she no longer dressed in shapeless clothes. She'd stopped trying to look 15 years older than she was, and she was quite becoming, even in widowhood. Uh, sit down over here, Mrs. Cram. You won't feel a roll so much. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Captain, I... I feel that I must tell you something. Oh, I've got to talk to someone. Oh, what about? About my husband. I don't believe he died of natural causes. You saw Reverend Beaver in the companion way? When he slugged you, yeah. His clerical robes and his kindly attitudes are a disguise, Captain. I think he killed my husband. Why? Out of jealousy. Harlan Beaver and I were quite closely associated a few years ago. Intimately, you might say. Uh -huh. But he got into serious trouble with the Dutch officials and he was sent to prison. Mm -hmm. I promised to wait for him, but while he was gone, I... Well, I learned to hate him for what he'd done to me. I married Alfred. Harlan found me and wanted me back. He threatened many times to kill Alfred, and I'm convinced that he finally did. Yeah. What's the idea of that clerical disguise, anyway? Just to cover up his tattoo work? I... I'm risking my life in telling you this, Captain... Harlan never finished his prison term. He escaped. Oh, yeah. Captain Carney, could I please stay here under your protection? I'm afraid. Well, if it will make you feel any better, Mrs. Cram, sure. You're welcome to the cabin. 
By the time the overcast morning had arrived, the wind had dropped to a fresh, gusty breeze. We'd repaired the main backstay, and the Scarlet Queen plunged into the still heavy swells under sail again. We'd made a new course to Pari Pari. We were a half hour out, and I was just being relieved at the wheel when Griffithy walked aft to meet me. Could I have a private word with you, Captain? Sure, Griffithy. How private? Mrs. Cram's in my cabin. Well, in the one recently vacated by her husband. Okay, come on. It's about Cram being killed instead of dying. I already heard it. Oh, did you now? And from whom, may I ask? His wife. Oh, how about it? It's the truth, Captain. He was poisoned. Uh, did she confess? No. She accused Beaver. The Reverend now. <laughs> And what might have been known at him to drive him to such lengths? The fact that he's not a reverend, he's an escaped convict. Ah. And jealousy over the woman from some past friendship. I know. Splendid. All the elements of drama, Captain Gear. Yeah? Well, you can have it, Griffithy. Sounds a little messy to me. <laughs> you uh, don't approve of these people, Captain? Not especially. None of them turn out to be what they looked like in the first place. The invalid isn't an invalid. He doesn't die, he's killed. The mousy woman turns into a sweater girl. The reverend is an escaped convict. It's a pretty good average. Everybody but Griffithy. He came aboard a villain, and by the saints, a villain he'll remain. Uh, but to the gist. Mm -hmm. uh, feeling a pang of hunger just before Cram departed, and having a weakness for strained baby food myself, I went into the hole to get me a can. You got guts, Griffithy, nosing around my ship. Hey, but I'm willing to pay for the liberty I took. Did you know, Captain Dear, that uh, you have a fortune on your ship? Or did I find it out? What are you talking about? Look here. Baby food. The can he held out to me had been opened. The label called it strained vegetables. But the can was filled with salt-like white crystals wasn't hard to figure what it was or why Cram had been putting on the invalid act. Narcotics, Captain. A ton of the stuff, I should say. Now listen, Captain dear. You've an eye for profit or you wouldn't be sailing these waters, carrying passengers and the like. The two of us have a fortune stacked up about us here in the cabin and more in the hold. It's ours for the taking. Yeah? Thousands of florins, dollars if you like. Do you have the heart for it? Well, that depends on our chances, Griffithy. Who's to say no? Vera Cram? Yeah, she'll not say a word. Not with the specter of murder hanging over her own head. She'd have a time convincing anybody she didn't poison them for a full share of their supplies. Mm -hmm. Do you think she did? No, because I did. But nobody will prove it, Captain dear. Even if they try, which I doubt. You did. A few drops of poison in the oil of the lamp, Captain, after cutting the wires of the generator so we'd have the lamps. Death by absorption of the stuff. A trick developed by the Borgias, God love them, who used the wick of the candle for the same purpose. A handy thing to know, isn't it? Perfect conditions. Small cabin, no ventilation with the ports closed against the storm. And Captain Deer, no evidence. The lantern I chucked over the side. <laughs> what do you think of that? That's very neat, Griffithy. I liked you better before I heard it, but it's very neat. You will join me in the venture? What's the deal? I simply face her with the truth. Offer her a choice between being turned over for smuggling and murder, 
and freedom as an honest woman recently widowed due to natural causes, carrying in her hand a death certificate signed by me and witnessed by you, and dabbing at her eyes from grief brought on by seeing her poor husband buried at sea. What do you think of that? I'll think it over. The thinking's done. What do you mean, man? Well, we've only seen one can of, uh, baby food, Griffity. You stay here and check some of these. I'm going into the hold and look at some of the ones down there. Okay? Well, you gave me a start, man. I thought you'd lost your heart. <coughs> Not me, Griffity. Captain! Captain! What have you done? After I locked his door, I did the same with those leading to the other principals. If there was anything I didn't want to get mixed up with, it was the Netherlands Indies Customs. They're tough at best and even tougher on non-nationals. I was going to turn over the whole shipload to the first official who'd take them. But I should have thrown them overboard and saved myself the trouble. Our hook hadn't been on the bottom of shallow anchorage off Pare Pare five minutes before the pudgy little local region had climbed out of his dinghy and stomped into the cabin. The arrival didn't surprise me, but what he had to say did. Captain Carney, I have the pleasure to report that you are to be detained for the arrival of customs officers from Mikasa. Well, I thought I'd give you the news, Regent. I got them all locked up for you, and the contraband is just as it came aboard. You will receive no leniency for your late show of cooperation. Leniency? Why should I need leniency? Yeah, you ask me that, Captain. Yeah, I ask you that. I didn't know what I had aboard until a little over an hour ago. You waste your time. That true story came from Mikasa last night. What true story? That you loaded the cargo, Captain. It wasn't cargo, and I didn't know what it was. The passengers were transferred from another ship. Papers, baggage, yeah, supplies, yeah, yeah, and all. Yeah, 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 you tell me that. But I tell you, Captain Van Riper went to the customs... Captain Van Riper? Yeah. What does he know about it? He says the cargo was not on his ship. That he saw you and the crime woman talking and that you took money from her. Ah. Well, then it's a frame. A what? I don't know what you call it out here. It means Van Riper's lying. Why should he lie? To get me into trouble with customs. Hey. What company does he sail under, do you know? It says on the message. Uh, it is here. Uh, do you read that? I don't have to. Constantino, isn't it? That is the name. Yeah, I thought so. Gallagher! Hey, right down, Skipper! Never mind coming down. Up anchor. We're sailing out of here. Wait. Do you mean it, Skipper? Get moving, Red. Get us out of here. What's the step? Yeah, I know, Fatty. You're a big man around here, but I can't stand still for this one. Now, do you want a pleasant trip, or do I have to brain you? And don't think I'm not mad enough to do it. Don't try it. You resist the Netherlands Indies government? When it reaches for a gun, I guess we'll have to. Now, I warned you, Fatty. I'll warn you again. You'll be a good boy, or I'll lash you to a mast. You hear from... I've heard enough already. Now, come on. Get up on your feet and follow me around. Don't talk. Just listen. You know, if you behave, you'll make yourself a name on this island. Come on. Griffity, you there? Hey, what's brewing? We're heading out to sea again. I got good news for you, Griffity. Yeah, I got a Dutch official who wants to come in with us. Huh? Protection. <laughs> you don't say now. Aye, what a fortune will do to the official mind. Here he is. Yeah. Yeah. He's worried about one thing. He thinks too many people know the stuff's aboard. Oh. He doesn't quite believe that you and the woman and I are the only ones, and that even I didn't know until an hour or so ago. Aye, that's right. There's not a thing to fear, man, dear. It was a good scheme from the beginning, and it's proven now. Yeah, since you killed Cram. Well, uh, that is a subject without appeal when I'm faced with a uniform. Thanks, Griffity. We'll get together later and map our course. <laughs> A 
After locking Griffithy in his cabin again, I left the regent in Gallagher's hands and called on Vera Cram. All I had was passion and greed to work with. But sometimes when they're stirred together, they're strong medicine. To her, I told the whole story up to, but not including, the meeting with Dutch law or its presence aboard. Then I went to the Reverend Harlan Beaver and told him the same, using only the truth, except in regard to one point. Because when I left him, he believed that Vera was not only denying him a share of the fortune in drugs as well as herself, but that she decided to share them both with Griffithy. I led the regent into my cabin, tucked him in a corner out of sight, but within hearing, returned his gun to him. I stationed Red outside the passageway in case I needed him, and then I gathered the passengers. What is the meaning of this meeting, Captain? I contracted for passage to my mission in... You can drop the act and take off the high-collar, Beaver. We all know who you are. Vera. I had to tell him, Holland, darling. I thought he'd help us. Help us what? Spend a fortune from your narcotics? Uh, Captain, I don't... Shut up, Gribbity! I thought he'd help us with your escape, Holland, so that we could start our life together again, Holland. Captain, why has the situation... Be quiet, Gribbity! Please, Holland. Well, now, who might you be to be quiet in me? Vera. Vera. I've taken a last from you. The months in prison I did for you. The escape I did for you. The hiding in disguise I did for you. Even your marriage didn't stop me. But this has. What, Harlan? I don't understand. Don't lie to me. I'd only felt this way before. How easy it would have been. But I don't understand. After Cram is dead, and you decide to share what you are and what you have with Griffithy, you don't understand that anything I felt for you has turned to hate. Griffithy. What have you been saying, Griffithy? I haven't been saying anything. No, of course you haven't. Why should you? Because I don't talk unless I think, Beaver, which is more than I can say for the two of you. But now I have thought, and I know why the captain has brought us here. <laughs> don't say the gun, Griffithy! It is the captain who thinks he will gain, but he won't. Alan, no! The medicine almost backfired. Griffithy pulled a revolver out of his pocket, pushing his chair back as he stood. He swung toward me, but Beaver's hate and jealousy were faster. <laughs> His gun spoke before he realized that Griffithy was drawing on me. He watched Griffithy's body slump to the floor, and while he did, the truth came to him. He looked up at me, started to raise his gun again. Then my Dutch ally in the corner opened up. <laughs> Beaver's right shoulder jerked twice under the shocks. He spun slowly around and collapsed loosely onto the deck. He's not dead, no? No, I don't think so, but thanks anyway. Hey, Skipper, it work all right? Yeah, yeah, Red. You know, I think I set a record of some kind. I've been saved twice in as many minutes. Once by an escaped convict and once by the law. Not bad, Skipper, not bad. Yeah, they will read about me in the newspapers in MacArthur. Better than that, Fatty. You're going to make a personal appearance. Because that's where we're going now. By nine the following morning, we'd made the return trip to Macassar, left our cargo, including passengers dead and alive in the fat hands of the regent, received our sailing orders, and headed out once more into a brightening sky over the strait. We left the harbor under power, but when we threaded through the traffic and found deep, clear water, we settled back on the wind. Stand by to make sail! The water was brushed into white caps by the playful gusts that were all that remained of the storm. Stop it, sheep! Make sail! The mainsail drew up to its height. The boom swung heavenly out. 
The deck beneath me shuddered a little under the first rush of sail power. The jibs went up and tightened. Then the mizzen. And the Scarlet Queen dug in. And the spray at her bow turned creamy with her speed. Lifted into the air. Blew to starboard like spindrift. A better departure than the last one, Skipper. Yeah, somewhat, mate. Now, we ought to set up a rule. No more passengers. They just mess up the ship. Well, they aren't all bad, Red. Oh, I don't know. Some of my best friends have been passengers. Well, how about smugglers? Well, all right. I'll go along with you there. We accept no more smugglers. Yeah, well, it's a relief to hear that. I know I'll sleep easier. You sound like you don't believe me, Red. Sure, I believe you, but I just don't trust smugglers. Well, that's a good, honest American remark, Red. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you, too. Drink, Skipper? Yeah, if you're sure it isn't contraband. After you, mate. After you. Log entry, the Catch Scarlet Queen. 5.30 p.m. Miles traveled from San Francisco, 16,821. Sky overcast, wind light, carrying full sail. Ship secure for night. Signed, Philip Carney, Master. Voyage of the Scarlet Queen has come to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. And that's this week's Mutual Presents feature. The Mutual Audio Network brings the best of old-time radio and modern audio theater to the world. Be sure to subscribe through the Mutual Audio Network podcast feed, any of our podcast days, or the Mutual YouTube channel, which includes MadCon and many other extra features and shows. See you all next time at Mutual Presents. Good night. Now you seem to me to be a connoisseur of the best of radio drama. In which case, make sure you're subscribed to the Monday Matinee Feed... There we have our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic, and live radio drama. So yeah, either the main Mutual Audio Network feed for all types and genres of audio drama, or the Monday matinee. And we'll see you there. The Mutual Audio Drama Network, where we listen and imagine together.